0: Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you brought us together again for uh, another time where we can gathered as your people, your gathered church, an expression of your amazing love and grace and mercy uh, in calling sinners back to yourself. We thank you that in your word, uh, you so powerfully and so lovingly declare to us uh, just what kind of God it is that you are. And we pray today as we come before your word, that you would deeply encourage us and you would uh, really build our trust in you. Uh, help us to be filled with awe and joy uh, and wonder at, your, at you and your works. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm not sure about you guys, but uh, when I was growing up in church, I grew up uh, under a steady uh, Christian diet of being told what to do all the time. All, all sermons ended with instructions about what to do, uh, whether that was to read the Bible more, or pray more, or evangelize more, right? It's always about something to do, right? To, to serve God more and better. <clears throat> and it's kind of odd sometimes when we come and hear a message where the, the application point or the, the take-home message isn't what-to-do. Uh, and maybe it's a odd in a good way to not be told what to do. And in a way that's right, that not every sermon should be about what we ought to do. Because when you look into God's Word... It isn't primarily a manual for what to do. It isn't a manual for how to live in a certain way or even how to live a godly life. That's part of the scriptures, but it's not what the main reason for scriptures are. God's word, first and foremost, is a revelation from God about God. It's God telling his creation, his people, everybody, his character and his purposes and his works. And especially seen in the gospel, which is the culmination, the, the full representation of God's character, purposes, and works. The Bible is about God and his gospel. And it's from knowing God that we can figure out how to live life in response to who God is and what God's purposes are and what God has done. But without knowing who he is and really taking that in, we have no idea. We'll just be doing stuff just for the sake of doing stuff which I know is a story for many of us growing up in churches, isn't it? Now, these chapters of Isaiah really focus us in on God. And the main response, really, is simply to behold your God, right? To really listen and to take God in, to see God as wonderful and worthy of trust, to feel wonder and experience joy. It's not really a doing, kind of thing. It's a listening and believing. Now, we need God's Word to help us to know how to live life. But more importantly, we need to know God in order for our faith in Him to be built up, to know what exactly are we doing in response to Him. At the end of the day, God's Word is to build our faith, isn't it? To restore and to renovate our faith that is flagging, that is lagging behind. Maybe some of us here are feeling tired as Christians, And our faith is becoming weaker and weaker. For some of us, maybe we just become a Christian recently, and our faith is young, and it needs to be built up. For others, we need a faith to be sustained during tough times. We're going okay, but we're getting pressured from all kinds of things in life, and we need our faith to be sustained. For others of us, we are going all guns blazing, right? We're doing well in the faith, and we need His Word to keep fueling that, for us to keep pressing on in the service to God without faith, in a God that we truly know, the life of faith is near impossible to live. And so God gives us his word today for us to really know him, to really know God. Now, in last week's chapters, chapter 40 to 42, Isaiah prophesies to Israel of a future time after a period of utter despair. So Isaiah wrote this around 700 BC. And as you saw last week, He pronounced this message of comfort, comfort to a people in the future, in a hundred or so years' time, when they are under exile, under judgment in Babylon. Uh, And the message to them was, in your despair in the future, God has a word for you, right? Comfort, comfort. And last week's message, as we saw, was, behold your God, the God who comforts, right? Behold your God, the God who comforts. Now, he continues in these few chapters we're looking at today with another prophecy, with a message, behold your God. But this time, what does he want them to behold? Behold your God, the only Savior, the only God. That's the message, right, All these six chapters. Behold your God, your only Savior, your only God. Now, we pick this up in the beginning of, uh, sorry, in the middle of chapter 42, right, verse 19. We, we see in this Passage from verse 18 to 25, the second half of, of chapter 42, that Isaiah is prophesying, teaching what is the two problems that Israel faces that needs saving from. Right? Two problems that they face that they have massive salvation needs in. Verse 19 is the first one, 4219. Who is blind but my servant, or death as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? If you read around the context, the servant was meant to be Israel. They were meant to be God's servants to God and to the world, but they were blind. They were spiritually blind and spiritually deaf. And so we see that one of their big problems was that they needed saving. They needed salvation from sin. Have a look at verse 22 now. Verse 22. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, sport with none to say, Restore. So we see the second problem they've got. They are plundered and looted, exiled and imprisoned, right? They, are, they need salvation from Babylon. You see, their, their spiritual condition, sin, and their national crisis, exile, are really two sides of the same coin. It's because of their sin that they're in exile, right? Exile is a punishment for their sin, judgment from God for their rebellion, now, in chapters 43 to 48, right, in, the, in, the one, in the passages we're looking at today, Isaiah's prophecies of rescue from Babylon is interspersed uh, with prophecies about forgiveness of sin. So there's rescue from Babylon, and there's forgiveness of sin. It's almost impossible to talk about one without the other, right? They're so intertwined, so connected. However, in these six chapters we're looking at this morning, this afternoon, the key focus is on salvation from Babylon. And when we get to next week, chapter 49 or 55, we'll see the emphasis on salvation from sin, the forgiveness of sin through through the servant, the suffering servant. But today, it's about the rescue from Babylon through the anointed Cyrus. But whether it is salvation from Babylon or salvation from sin, the main point of these chapters is very clear, very simple. The Lord God is Israel's only savior. The Lord God is, is Israel's only Savior. And the message for us today is that the Lord God is our only Savior. Now, when we we open chapter 43 and we start to see the uh, the prophet Isaiah talk about God's salvation, it's awesome how it starts. It's such a joy to hear how intimate and personal salvation is. Chapter 43, verse 1. But now thus says the Lord... He who created you, O Jacob; he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name; you are mine. You see, right from the get-go, we see that salvation from God is not driven by a business-like uh, or, or a dispassionate plan of God to save. It is not business-like at all. It is not dispassionate at all. It's, it, it reminds us, as we begin here, the prophecy of salvation that it is God who has created and formed his people, both as a creator, forming us as human beings, but also informing Israel, informing Jacob to be his chosen people. There's this great sense here of personal ownership and a cherished belonging to God. And then God says, I have redeemed you. I have personally gone out and I have brought you back. I have called you by name. Every single one of them, not just a specific general call, but He has called each of them individually, each of us individually by name, to belong to Him. Listen to how present God is in in salvation, right? How present He is with us. Verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. See, God is both personal and powerful. Wrapped up together, verse 3. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored in God's eyes, and I love you. I'm not sure if you've ever read in the Old Testament such a direct word from God to His people, to us saying, I love you. Now, maybe you've grown up in Sunday school, or maybe you've been told many times, you know, you write, God loves me, right? And you feel, oh, that's really childish. You know, it's too simplistic. Is it really true? And then you read Isaiah 43, verse 4, and he says, you are precious in my eyes, You are honored by God, and you are loved by God. It's amazing, isn't it? And and the love that he shows is that he pursues, right? He he goes to the four corners of the globe where the people have been scattered, right? to Assyria, to Babylon, wherever they've been scattered, and he goes and gathers them home. Uh, The impact of this is you have to almost put yourself in, in Israel's shoes at this point in time. Imagine them reading this in about 550, 560 B.C. when they're in Babylon, right? They're living a terrible life, being captured uh, in slavery, uh, taken away from their homes. And, And it wasn't just a freak of nature. It wasn't just because of warfare in the region. It was because God's hand of judgment was on them. They knew that they were there because they were guilty, As rebels against God, and they were living this terrible, crappy life in Babylon as prisoners. And then you open this prophecy from Isaiah, written a hundred odd years ago, and you hear the message that God is powerfully working to save you. And why? You read in verse 4 it's because you are precious to Him, because you're honored and because you're loved. How would you feel? Listening to these words from God, how amazed would you be? Wouldn't you sit there in your crappy living quarters and think, why would God even bother with me? Why would He do this? I mean, He's, he's created us and we've become such worthless creatures. Why would the maker of, of something precious that had become so rotten want to keep pursuing Rotten old me, wretched man that I am. Why would God call out to each individual rebel, me, the person beside me, and all the other rebels living in Babylon under God's judgment? Why would He go out and call each of us by name? Why would He go out of His way to pursue us, to be with us? Why would He say, I will be with you through it all? And it's not till we realize that we are so far from God, so undeserving. Then when we hear a verse like this, and you make yourself wonder, why would God bother with me? And yet he does. And, and when we get to the New Testament, we, we see where the Bible goes with this promise of God to be with us. We see that he comes, his son, the Son of God comes in this world to make promise to his disciples, to us Christians. Right? famous verses, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, it ends with this beautiful verse, doesn't it? And behold, Jesus says to his disciples, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you always to the end of the age. And Jesus fulfills this promise. How is he with us? He fulfills this promise by giving us his Holy Spirit. In John 14, Jesus says this, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, For he dwells in you and will be in you. How do we know what Isaiah meant when he spoke God's word saying that God will be with them? We know because we have the Spirit. God dwelling in us, living in us. Belonging to God, being loved by God doesn't get any more personal than this belonging to God and being loved by God doesn't get any more personal than this, right? No fairy tale could ever think up a story so good. No hero in existence could be so unbelievably heroic and generous had they not been living in a world where God has already done the most heroic, the most generous, the best thing that we could ever see someone do. You see, the Lord God is the only saviour. The only one, not just with the power to save, but with the desire to save. Just because God is powerful doesn't mean anything good for us unless He desires to save us. And that's what He does. He desires to save us. So the question is, having read this passage, is your experience of God's salvation intensely personal like this? Many of you here are believers. You, You know what it means to be saved by God through the gospel, has your experience of God's salvation been intensely personal like this? Or has it been that your, your approach to salvation, to faith, has been too intellectual, that you fail to behold just how unbelievably wonderful and generous and personal our saving God is? Do you feel comfortable saying, God loves me? And are you able to say, I love God? Is there something personal to salvation? Now, so for some of us, you know, we, we weigh down by guilt. We weigh down by guilt, aren't we? Or we, we feel spiritually dry, disconnected from God for whatever reasons. Maybe there's no joy in your faith at this current time. Now, if that's you, then you would do well to meditate upon this wonder of a passage. You know, to to find to find joy and comfort in God, not just to know it in your head, but to actually experience it in your hearts, to be able to be sparked in your wonder and awe of God again, a God who so loves and cherishes us, who are so undeserving. I hope that you'll have an intensely personal view of God's salvation an experience of it, because it's true, it's real. Now, having declared God his own ability to, to save and his willingness to save, we see that God then acts to save, or he acts to save Chapter forty-three, verse fourteen. Let's pick it up from verse fourteen. Isaiah forty-three fourteen. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Now the Chaldeans here are just another name for the Babylonians, right? And and until we just, one word, in a way, out of the blue, if you read chapter 43, suddenly Babylon gets mentioned for the first time since chapter 39, okay? With just one word from God, Babylon's demise is prophesied, isn't it? It's just like that. They are going down. They are going to be brought off and carted away into exile. They are going to be fugitives. The the grand ships in which they took so much pride will will actually ship them off into a foreign land. And we need to actually skip forward to chapter 45 to see how exactly God will do this. Right? So turn to the next page, chapter 45. How will God bring Babylon down? Chapter 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hoards in secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who called you by name. Now, who is this Cyrus guy in verse 9, right? Who is this Cyrus who is anointed by God? Well, Cyrus, if you know your history, is the king of Persia who conquers and overthrows Babylon in 539 B.C. Now, this is not from fairy tale. This is history books, right? King Cyrus of Persia um, conquered and overthrew Babylon in 539 B.C. Now, that sounds pretty normal. That's what happens, right, in life. Empires come, empires go. But guess when this was written? Isaiah was prophesying when? In around 700 B.C., isn't it? if you know your BCs and your ADs, bigger number in BC is longer ago, right? 539 is nearer to us, okay? So what we have here is God prophesied through his prophet about 160 years in advance that a guy called Cyrus, spell it out, C-Y-R-U-S, is going to be king of Persia and he will overthrow Babylon. You think about that. There's nothing short of amazing, isn't it? God's word makes it doubly and triply clear just how sovereign God is in all this, right? It's not, it's not some kind of fluke. Let's see, look at verse four, right? Look at verse four, 45 verse four. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I, right, Yahweh God, call you Cyrus by your name. I name you, though you do not know me, i am the lord and there is no other beside me there is no god i equip you though you do not know me that people may know from the rising of the sun in the east and from the west that there is none besides me i am the lord and there is no other i form light and create darkness i make well-being and create calamity i am the lord who does all these things You see how much repetition there is when God says, well ahead of time, a hundred over years before, before even Cyrus was in the thought of his mother or his grandmother or perhaps even great-grandmother. 160 years, right? That's what four, five, six generations before he was even a figment of imagination. God called him by name to raise him up, to equip him, to do his work of conquering Babylon. Now, empires come and go, right? We know that. You look at history books, empires come and go. So I can easily say to you, you know, U.S., their days as a superpower of the world will be over soon. Uh, Some other world leader will rise up, probably Asian, because Asians rule the world now, or they will. That doesn't make me a prophet. I just, yeah. Every any generation you can say that, of any empire. But God's not doing that. C-Y-R-U-S. Cyrus by name. God calls him out. Long, long before he's even a thought in anybody's imagination. Even while he's going about his business being raised up in some royal family, as he goes about planning with his army how to conquer foreign lands, even as he takes over Babylon, he doesn't know God. He doesn't know that that someone has been in charge and in control. Now, if you read 2 Kings, you will know that one day Cyrus does realize that God is speaking to him, and he lets Israel go home, right? For 30, 40, 50 years of his life, he's just doing what man does, conquering away, not realizing this prophecy has been written about him way in advance. Now, Israel reading this, what a shock it would have been for them, right? For, For Cyrus to be called God's anointed, God's anointed is a special word for the Old Testament people. I'll bring it up to you on the screen, right? This is the word. That's what anointed means, right? In Hebrew, anointed means Messiah. Or more technically, in, in Hebrew, it's Mashiach. You've got to spit a bit, right? Mashiach. Right? So Messiah is the same word as Christ. right? So Hebrew, Messiah. Christos, Greek. English, anointed one. They all mean the same thing. And it means God's chosen king and savior. Cyrus of Persia is God's king and savior at the time. It would be shocked for Israel, and I can imagine it would be shocked for Cyrus too, to finally realize what God has done in his life. Now, all this prophesied 150 years in advance. What's God doing? What's his purpose in doing all this? Well, he makes it so clear, doesn't he? Over and over, and over and over in these verses, he repeats this line, doesn't he? So that you, Israel, so that we reading these words today may know that it is the Lord God who has done this. So that we may know that it's the Lord God who has done this. No one else can do this. Only me. That's what God is saying, right? Can't you see? Can't you see? I am, right? That's his name. That's what Yahweh means, the Lord. I am. I only can. There is no other. But God rescues and saves in ways that makes it absolutely clear that He is the one doing it, that He is in absolute sovereign control. And even more surprising, a salvation that comes through Cyrus and all the prophecies fulfilled so miraculously, is the gospel. Is God saving us through the gospel the most surprising salvation, the most surprising savior of them all? The idea that God would take on flesh to live amongst us, that salvation will come through dying on a cross. Right? That's not expected. Well, why would, why would, why would God's savior have to die on a cursed tree? That his exaltation as king is through his resurrection from the dead. That in Jesus, all the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament are fulfilled amazingly, in the one person. Now, I dare you to go and find every prophecy and promise in the Old Testament, and you try and figure out whether it's possible that one person can fulfill it. You kind of think, no way, right? Except that we're Christians, and we know, yes, way. Right? Jesus has fulfilled all of God's promises and prophecies. In Jesus, we see how God can, can remain just and pour out His wrath in judgment on sinners, and yet how He can save and give us forgiveness. God saves in a way which makes us see that God alone is God, and there is no other. There is no other way of salvation that can solve our problems. There is no other God who can do it with the kind of wisdom and control and love that God has done it through Jesus. But there's more. There's more to behold. One more point, right? Point C. Alongside Babylon's downfall is the downfall of her idols, I turn with you now to chapter 44, starting at verse 6. Have a look at chapter 44, starting at verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, do not be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Is there any other? And just to be sure, he goes into 12 verses of mockery, isn't it? It's really mockery of idols and the stupidity of worshipping idols from verse 9 to 20. Right? We touched on this last week. If you hear last week, chapter 40, there was already a passage about the, 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 the foolishness, the stupidity of idols and idol worship. But here is another kind of extended version of showing the absolute worthlessness of idols and the stupidity of people who want to worship it. Now, pick it up with me in verse 14. Okay, We'll just read a bit of it. And I want you to hear how much mockery and sarcasm is kind of in these verses. He, this is the carpenter, the one who's going to build the idol, cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it, and he warms himself. He kindles a fire, and he bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire, right? Over the half he eats meat, he roasts it, and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm, I have seen this fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and he falls down and he worships it, he prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. You see that? Aha, I am so warm. There is fire. Deliver me. Same piece of wood. You can laugh, you know. Bible is quite funny sometimes, right? And you think about it. The, the misery of getting a piece of wood, you cut it down in half, one you burn, feed yourself, make some bread, feel warm, and the other piece, you calf, 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 then deliver me. Why would Israel do this? Why, why do men and women put trust in man-made things to deliver? And why is it that Israel kept falling to idol worship? And why is it that today we continue to worship idols? Now you know, we might not bow, bow down to a thing we carve with our hands, right a piece of wood. But we still look to man-made things to deliver us, don't we? We still look to man-made things to deliver us. We still look to the man-made earning of money the provision of money, to make us feel secure and to get through things in life. We still look for a secure job to deliver us from a meaningless existence or to give us purpose. We, we still look, to, uh, we look for security and for fulfillment in, in rom- romance and in family, in, in medicine. This constant pursuit to be healed and have a longer life. We're still saying to the things of this world that we make with our hands, that we make with our minds, Deliver me, for you are my God. Whenever you look to something to give you meaning purpose, you're asking it to deliver you from a life of meaninglessness. It's asking you to give substance. That's what God does. Now, when you think about Israel, why is it that they would keep on fashioning idols of the gods of the nations around them to worship? What was it that was so alluring about these idols? Well, what was alluring about these idols was that they worked, right? They worshipped these idols because they worked. Now, what do I mean by that? Now, I love watching kung fu movies, right? I grew up watching a lot of them, and the Ip Man series is pretty good. Anyone watch Ip Man? I said number three, right? Number three is weird. Mike Tyson is in Ip Man. Okay, he's really weird. Um, But Ip Man is um, Wing Chun Master, right? He's the sifu of Bruce Lee, right? And there's a few movies made about him. And you know how these movies are, right? In a Kung Fu movie, they'll, they'll have their school, you know, the Wing Chun school versus the whatever other school. I don't even know any of the other names, because Wing Chun's best, right? So <laughs> they, what happened was the Wing Chun school guys would be like walking around the streets, being all, you know, I'm Wing Chun guy. And then the other people will come on their street and they'll have a fight, right? It's always like that. they have a fight and then they get thrown on tables. table. The table will smash. They'll get smashed by benches, but then there will be no scratches on their face because they're like invisible. And now there'll be an impasse there'll be like a draw, right? Everyone's like all better and bruised up or whatever. And then they call Sufu, si right, to come and fight, correct? And then there'll be this battle scene, right, between the Sufu, si right? And you've got Donnie Yen, Ip Man, fighting with his broom, uh, feather duster because he's just so good because he's being chun, right? And then the other guy will be like using his, all his funny stuff. And then what happens is the master will lose. And then the Tuti, all the disciples, will be like, oh. Then they'll drop their weapons that belong to the old school. And then what do they do? They gonna follow, right? Iman, man, sifu, right? You know, accept me as your disciple. And then they will present their power, whatever. Right? Okay? Israel was a defeated school, weren't they? In the 7th century BC, in the 6th century BC, they were the defeated school. Babylon was the victor. So they signed up to worship the idols of the victor. That's so what you do, right? I mean, Babylon, they were led to battle and to victory by Bel, right the, the, the head god of the Babylonian pantheon of gods, and his son, Nebo. Babylon rose and rose and rose with victory after victory after victory, and the more they rose in power, the greater the fame and glory of Nebo and Bel, their gods. And so, in the wake of victory, everyone's going, Oh, hail Babylon's gods. There'll be a rush to create statues, right, in worship of them. I mean, they're the strong guys, right? They're the ones doing all the winning. Now, idol worship is the same. If you think of it as being just a block of wood, of course you wouldn't worship it. But if that block of wood represents winning in this life, well, you'd worship it, wouldn't you? To see, to, to, to bow down to the things that seem to be great in our world, to what seems victorious and successful, to what seems to deliver us. But what short-sightedness is this? What a poor, poor interpretation of events, of history, of what God is doing in this world. Babylon, they won because God purposed it, right? Babylon was simply an instrument in God's hand of judgment against his people. Babylon didn't win over God. God was just using them. Right? There were pawns in his hands. And if that wasn't clear enough, then when King Cyrus of Persia sweeps in and wipes out Babylon, once again, being used by God as an instrument of his judgment against Babylon, it's clear just how powerless Babylon and her gods are. It's clear how worthless these idols are that seem to give victory for a short period of time. Have a look at chapter 46, verse 1 with me. Chapter 46, verse 1. We get to meet Bel and Nebo, okay? We get to meet the kings, I'm oh, sorry, the gods of Babylon. Chapter 46, verse 1. Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. This is the picture of what happened after Cyrus came and beat Babylon down. We have Bel and Nebo literally stooped down, bent over onto the backs of mules, being borne and carried off into exile themselves. The Babylonians, they had to carry their own gods. But we hear that Yahweh God carries his people. Verse 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to gray, gray, gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and I will save. See the contrast. The Babylonians are carrying their gods off into exile, but God, Yahweh, our God, from before we were born in the womb to, to uh, through the birth canal, through, through all of life, through all age, forever, He bears and carries us. He saves us. You see, the long view is that God is our creator, our sustainer, and our only saviour. Let's read more, right? These two passages are too awesome not to read more. Okay, Verse 5. <clears throat> to whom will you liken me and make me equal, and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it up to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. <clears throat> Declaring the end from the beginning, and from the ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken... And I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Can you hear what God is trying to tell us? I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no other. Bell and Nebo. Now tell me, before today, have you ever heard of them before? Put your hand up. Those who have heard of Bel and Nebo before. One. Two. People who read their Bibles, right? Two people read, read this part of the Bible. Okay, excellent. First service got about six, okay? So next time, try and beat them, All right? Now, Bel and Nebo. <clears throat> Two people have heard in this room who Bel and Nebo are. Let me ask you, are they worshipped today? You know, when you drove to church this morning or walked to church, did you see any temples Dedicated to Bel or Nebo. Okay, maybe let's go a bit further. In all your travels, and some of you here have traveled far and wide, has anyone here ever seen a temple devoted to Bel or Nebo? Or any Babylonian god, for that matter? I don't see any hands this time, right? Zero. One big fat egg. No single person today worships Bel or Nebo. Hardly anybody knows who they are. What about the Lord God of the Bible and His Son, Jesus Christ? Any of you heard of them before? Who's heard of the Lord God of the Bible and Jesus Christ? Put your hand up. Come on, put your hand up. Double hands up if you've heard of them twice, three times. Now, when you walk to or you drove to to, to church today, how many churches did you drive past that bear the name of God and His Son, Jesus Christ? In all your travels around the world, has there been a place that you've gone to that hasn't at least got one church? I went, I went to Japan, right, a few months ago. Japan has something like 0.3% of the population who are Christian. And yet in the center of Tokyo CBD, I walked into a church. that are 150 people in it. And we have a partner, the man that's why, in North Japan, Hokkaido, in, in woop, right? Uh, Kampong, right? Nobody place. There's church there. How many churches do we see around the world? How many churches do we see every day? You know, idols are worshipped because they point to something successful and victorious. They seem powerful and great, but only for a time. They hold out a promise of salvation, of security and success, but they can't deliver. Don't be fooled. Whereas the Lord God, our only Savior, through his son our lord and savior jesus christ has shown us over and over again that he can deliver and he has delivered all through humanity through his son's coming and dying and raising gives us a certainty of what he will keep on doing, doing to the end and it's hard for us isn't it to see beyond the present it's hard for us to take the long view when the present evils and trials and disappointments and discouragements set in. It's hard to take the long view when others in our lives, around us, seem to be delivered from their trials and tribulations and their their meaninglessness and are given meaning in life and and have money and career and family and and all the good things that this world offers as, as gods. It's hard to take the long view when they seem so successful and our God doesn't seem so great. And that's why we need God's word. We need God to, to help us, to call us to behold Him again, to see Him as the great I Am, Yahweh, to see that He alone is God, to see that He alone saves. God wants us to take the long view, to, be able to see what He has already done, and to be certain of what He will definitely do. God is calling us this afternoon to hear His word. To behold, come and see. Take him all in and believe that the Lord God alone is God. He alone saves. Intensely personal is our salvation, our saving God. Immensely powerful he is to overthrow the enemy. And incredibly and undeniably, God saves in infinitely wise ways. All to show us that he alone saves. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we thank you so much for your word that speaks such a wonderful and powerful message. We thank you that in content, intellectually, it is already so amazing, but with the help of your spirit, Implanting your word deep in our hearts, we are amazed, we stand in wonder and awe at just how supreme and infinite and unique you are as God. We thank you for your word that that calls on us to behold you, to really be convinced, not just in our minds, but convicted in our hearts that you are the only Savior, the only God. Help us to see just how intensely personal you are to us for us to be able to hear your words with such amazing gratitude and wonder that you treasure us, that you honor us, and that you love us. We thank you for your infinitely wise and powerful plan of salvation, that that over a period of centuries and millennia, that every promise, every prophecy of yours has been fulfilled amazingly in your son Jesus that your salvation plan could never be invented or thought of by anyone else, that no fairy tale could be as good, no hero could be as heroic. It is only you. And we pray that in knowing this, you will help us never, never to ask the things that we make with our hands to deliver us. That we will see that it is worthless and meaningless and, and just foolish to, to, to strive after money for meaning, to strive after a good career or, or or family life, or or romantic relationship, or or medical advancements to prolong our lives, to truly give us the security and the meaning and purpose that we need. Help us to see that it is you alone that can give us life, that can save us. We pray this in Jesus' name.